Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Katie Redford. Katie, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm very good. And I'm going to introduce people to you if they don't know about you already with a quick bio, a quick description of what you're doing now, and then go back to a bit of your history, what brought you here. But we're going to talk about Memphis a bunch because you just got back from working on a pipeline case that made a big difference. So you're the executive director of the Equation Campaign, a bold new climate initiative that funds movements on the ground to keep fossil fuels in the ground, which by the way, this is very different than making more renewables because people are making a lot of renewables, but not actually stopping keeping oil in the ground. So that was, I have to say, that's what made me most excited about having you on was that focus on keeping the oils in the ground. Now you're the co-founder and executive and former director of Earth Rights International, a nonprofit, non-government human organization combining the power of law and power of people in defense of human rights and the environment. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff about the institutions that where you teach, where you've gotten degrees from, which are just off the charts. And you also worked on a landmark case, Doe versus Unical, which hopefully we'll get to in a second. But I want to also describe the Equation Campaign from the Equation Campaign page. It's a new 10-year funding initiative working to bring about a safe and just future by enhancing the power of movements to keep oil and gas in the ground. The science is irrefutable to avert the worst effects of the climate crisis. Carbon emissions must be cut in half by 2030, I would say, hopefully more faster, but some people go slower. While supporting the rapid growth of renewables and energy efficiency is essential, here's the big thing. This support cannot solve the climate problem alone. There's a missing piece of the equation, stopping oil and gas at the source. This means stopping getting it from out of the ground, refining it, and so forth. And so this gives a bit of background about you. I wonder if we could start with a bit of your background. What led to Doe versus Unical? What's Doe versus Unical as a way of introducing what your, your current work today? Oh, boy. Interesting to hear somebody else read all that stuff about me. But thank you. You make me sound really good, Josh. So Doe versus Unical was a case that I helped conceive of and work on back in the 90s when you know we were in the midst of global expansion and sort of the age of globalization if you will and you know president clinton at the time said something about you know that every market in the world is an open market and that open societies would lead to open or open markets would lead to open societies and that you know if the world was our oyster essentially for corporations to go everywhere to do good or bad, to make profit, um, to extract, to employ, to do what corporations do, there was this assumption that, you know, US and global corporations going around the world would somehow open societies as well and lead to democracy. And instead, that's not what corporations are set up to do. Corporations are not set up to bring human rights and environmental justice and democracy and open societies. Corporations are set up to make profit. And that's their legal obligation. And so what we were seeing in the 90s, and that was when I was a law student, was a globalization of profit and extraction and exploitation and externalization of human rights and environmental costs, but not a globalization of law, of justice, of human rights and democracy. To the contrary, there was a race to the bottom and it was, you know, companies fleeing from regulatory frameworks in the United States and Europe that, you know, required them to do, you know, emissions controls and to 
respect labor rights and human rights and going to countries where they didn't have to do any of that. And so as a law student, I was really horrified by that. And I thought, this is something that I want to focus my career on. And, and I had spent a lot of time on the Thai-Burma border and working on human rights issues in Burma before I went to law school. And I learned that there was this oil company called Unical, which has now been taken over by Chevron, that was one of the only companies in the world. There were two European and U.S. companies, Total of France and Unical of the United States, that had literally gone into a contractual relationship with the Burmese military. And at the time, and and now again today, sadly, the Burmese military dictatorship was one of the most brutal and ruthless in the world. And so for a U.S. company to go into contract and essentially hire the military to provide, quote unquote, security for their pipeline, what that meant, what security meant, you know, supposedly for the oil company meant slave labor, killing, rape torture, widespread forced relocation of villages, destruction of villages. It meant egregious human rights abuses and crimes against humanity for people on the ground. And so, you know, as a as a law student, I was like, well, I'm pretty sure that slave labor, torture, killing, crimes against humanity are illegal. I learned that they would never be able to do that in the United States. And so this is something that's happening and is being allowed to happen simply because it's in a country like Burma where, you know, the company thinks out of sight is out of mind or, you know, what happens in Burma stays in Burma. And so we founded, I, together with a a friend from law school who now runs the human rights clinic at Harvard Law School. So training the next generation, Tyler Giannini and I, and a third person, a human rights activist from Burma, Kasawa, we founded Earth Rights to, as you said, combine the power of law and power of people to defend human rights and the environment and to actually bring the power of the legal system to bear on these corporate human rights abusers that thought they could just like leave the United States and do whatever they want. And we, everyone told us we were crazy. Everyone said, you can't stop an oil company from you know, doing what they do when they go overseas and the people of Burma are under a dictatorship. There's no way that they, first of all, that you can work together with them. It's too dangerous. And second of all, that they would ever have the access to U.S. laws or international laws. They're the most powerless people in the world on paper because ethnic minorities under a brutal military regime. And we said, well, we're going to find a way to organize these people put the you know put the evidence together file a lawsuit against this oil company and hold them accountable hold them to international standards like the prohibition against slavery torture and rape um they shouldn't be able to benefit from that they shouldn't be able to benefit from destroying people's lives and the lands in which they operate and all of the experts told us that you can't do that you can't sue an oil company you can't hold a company accountable for a what it does overseas. It's impossible. It's unconstitutional. And, you know, basically wake up and smell the coffee, you cute little young kids. And they were wrong. We did it anyway. We said, well, you're just saying that because no one's ever done it before. And we put together this case. We filed Doe Unical. Our clients were John and Jane Doe's. Obviously, that's not their names. We, we had to, you know, give them these pseudonyms, make them anonymous so that they wouldn't be killed for bringing this case. Mm -hmm. And 
brought this case, filed it in U.S. courts, and it became the first case in, in U.S. legal history in which company was actually allowed to be sued and then eventually held accountable for what they did overseas. And that was 25 years ago. And for the next you know, 25 years, we continued to bring other cases against other corporations, not just oil companies and not just in Burma, but around the world. Because sadly, this playbook that, that Unical had been operating from of going overseas, out of sight, out of mind, externalizing their costs, extracting, exploiting the local people and local environments for their profit. That was something that was happening all over the world. And so we brought other cases against Shell in Nigeria, Chevron in Nigeria, Occidental Petroleum in Colombia, Union Carbide, now Dow Chemical for the massive biggest industrial accident in, in history, the Union Carbide Bhopal disaster in India. So around the world, this this sort of sadly pattern and practice of corporations doing whatever they want as quickly as they can, cutting every corner to make a buck um, was happening. And we would bring cases against them and sort of say, you know what, what happens in Nigeria doesn't stay in Nigeria. You can run, but you cannot hide. And international law does have the reach to hold these companies accountable. And so this idea that the little guy can win and that David can defeat Goliath. And in fact, in my opinion, it's the only way that systemic transformational change can happen is when the people who have the most to gain and lose from the outcome of a strategy are at the center and in the driver's seat. That's when systemic and and massive power shift can happen. Because in a lawsuit, I could have and could come up with the most brilliant legal strategy on paper, right? But if I don't have a client who actually has a stake, in, in legal terms, we call that standing to bring a lawsuit, I can't bring a lawsuit just because I have a great idea. You actually have to have a client who has been harmed or who could be harmed by or helped by the outcome of that case. And so what we saw in Doe v. Unical, that's David versus Goliath. These, these villagers from Burma who dared to challenge corporate power and speak out and tell their stories and organize and connect with lawyers like me and and many other lawyers with journalists who then told their stories with community-based activists. And they they were able to not just demand and get justice for themselves and their family in their case, but also to change the law for everyone. Because at the end of the day, this oil company had to pay a whole lot of money. They also spent 10 years defending themselves and being featured as sort of the poster child for global human rights abuses, corporate human rights abuses. Their brand suffered, their reputation suffered as a corporation. They're certainly the president and the board paid a huge price in terms of being known as the company that was complicit in and benefiting from rape, torture, and crimes against humanity in Burma. And I'll also say at the time that company Unical was the only company in the world to do business with the Taliban in the 90s. So look at where we are today as we speak. Um, 
this is not what you want to be known for. So anyway, so this is something that I think, you know, when you, when you come to right now, what I would say is, and not just me, I mean, you know, Bishop Tutu has said this, many, many global leaders have said the biggest threat to global human rights right now is climate change and the injustice of climate change, like the injustice of human rights abuses on the ground in Burma has been driven and continues to be driven by the fossil fuel industry. And that's where I'm now putting my heart and soul and all of my energy in doing exactly what I was doing and have been doing for 25 years, which is organizing and lifting up and investing in the power of people most directly affected by the fossil fuel industry, which is people who live where they operate and investing in their power to stop these companies at the source, stop the expansion of oil and gas, keep it in the ground, because it doesn't matter how much you and I ride our bikes or walk instead of drive or stop flying. We can do that and we must. But if these companies continue to drill, expand, burn, and sell this product that is killing all of us and is dooming the planet to a place where humans cannot survive, then then we're just not going to get where we need to go. So we've got to stop the expansion, wind down this industry, wind down the fossil fuel economy and energy economy and move on to renewables. and, And it's not just replacing one source of energy with another. We have to fundamentally shift our orientation and the way we see the planet as something that is a resource for us to exploit, extract, and use to something that is precious and finite that we need to steward and care for. Okay, that was like a really long (laughs) thing, but you're going to have to edit that. But (laughs) On the contrary, incredibly inspirational. And perhaps the biggest inspiration is that while many could have said, well, there's a lifetime worth of achievements, I read that as that just gave you the platform to start as big as that, as big as a, a global precedent setting case. I mean, when you talked about Shell in Nigeria, that tells me that's a non US company in a non US place. Was that US law applied there, or is now you're getting laws from other places, or is it? Yeah, no, that's really good. So, so the Unical case, because Unical was a US company, we were able to bring them into court in the United States, you know, and they, they fought vigorously against that saying, we're not subject. As soon as we go overseas, we're only subject to the laws of the land in which we operate. And that was actually in the nineties, the law, and that's what we changed. But we were able to get what we say jurisdiction in the United States because it's a U.S. company and, and we happen to have laws on the books. And especially at the time, they've been rolled back a little bit. But um, laws that say, you know, if you are wherever you are in the world, if you engage in violations of the law of nations, which we argued human rights law counts as the law of nations, you can be held accountable in U.S. courts as long as you can be found here for the purpose of jurisdiction. So a U.S. company, obviously, that that bill, even though they fought it tooth and nail. With the Shell case, we were like, well, it isn't just US companies. It's, you know, companies from other countries as well, like Shell, who, you know, said, well, we're British or maybe we're Dutch, but you can't certainly sue us in the United States. And initially, 
they won on those arguments. And the U.S. courts said, well, you know, why can't you bring these cases in this case against Shell in the U.K. or in the Netherlands? So they actually kicked it out of U.S. courts and said, bring this over over there. And we spent, you know, months, maybe years, I don't even remember how long it took at this point, appealing that decision saying, actually, you can't sue Shell and in either the UK or, or the Netherlands. At the time, you couldn't because they didn't have laws like we had that, like we had in the United States that would allow someone from another country to sue them for human rights abuses for something that happened in that foreign country. So actually, the courts in the Netherlands and the UK at the time could not have taken those cases. So we were able to convince the US court to bring it back and to say, like, look, Shell is clearly in the United States. They've got offices all over the place. They've got PR firms. They're, they've got marketing agencies. They're traded on you know, the stock exchange. They are here benefiting from their presence in the United States. They're profiting from their presence. It can't be that this company gets all the benefits, but none of the responsibilities by being here. If you're either here or you're not, <laughs> right? So you can't be here when it benefits you, but not here when you might be held accountable for the execution of environmental activists, for example, which is what we sued them for, their complicity and execution and, and torture. So, you know, we made these quote unquote crazy arguments and that is what all the experts told us. It's crazy. You can't do that. It's a foreign company. And we said, well, the last time someone told us that was a crazy idea, we changed the law. So it kind of became like a litmus test. Like, did the experts say it's crazy? Then we're going to do it because there's a fine line between crazy and genius. And it's the line is when you try it and you succeed, you go from being crazy and unrealistic and idealistic to overnight being innovative, entrepreneurial, and genius. And so I would say with the Equation Campaign, where we are and where we have come from is that same spirit of doing what the experts say is impossible. And, and clearly our economy and even, you know, the way that the global economy and that governments and our leaders, although I would say they're not leading us where we need to go, but where our leaders are is it's impossible to wind down fossil fuels within the next five or 10 years. We can't do it. In fact, the latest infrastructure bill that you know is being debated right now and, and that Biden is trying to pass continues to subsidize these industries. Billions of dollars going to prolong the life of these fossil fuel industries that we need to be winding down. So everyone clearly thinks it's impossible for us to manage the decline of this industry. And yet it's what the science tells us we have to do. We've just, we're talking a week after or two weeks after the IPCC report, which tells us that actually the urgency that they told us we had to operate on three years ago, it's even more urgent than we thought. We have less time than we thought to avert the worst of the crisis. I want to bring in 
a couple before we get into that into into now everyone's saying it's impossible is for you like the biggest red flag well then that's what i'm going to work on then yeah we can't not we can't not do it because otherwise we're giving up we're saying well we're going to we're just going to die we're all going to you know just doom the planet to humanity it's not impossible it's actually not we have the technology we have the resources we have the know-how we have everything. We have the money to make this transition now. We have everything we possibly need to be able to manage the decline in a way that protects workers, communities, in a way that makes it possible. And yet, the only thing we don't have is the power to make it so, is the political power on our side and the political will on the side of our our leaders, our elected officials, and certainly the power to resist the corporate power, which is pushing, 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 and fighting to prolong their ability to dig, drill, burn, and doom us to a planet that humanity cannot survive. And so we've got to invest in the power of people on the ground to fight that corporate power and also in the power of movements to transform um, the systems and structures that are in place right now that keep us on this path, this crash course that, that we're currently on. But we have what we need. And so it's not impossible just because, you know, people who don't have an imagination think it's impossible and say it's impossible. It's, it's absolutely not. You know that. You know it's possible to live in a different way. There's also the possibility of, of technology and, and shift. And so, so that's what we have to do. And that's what, that's what I'm doing. It can be done. You bring something in that many people don't, which is you bring, lead, I call it in my terminology, it would be leadership. You're not just saying it can be done. You are doing things. You're seeing some people say leaders see what other, what's there, but no one sees. And you are, you're acting and you're enabling others to act. And you, as an individual, embodied to me the opposite of what I sometimes think is like the the anthem of our age, which is what I do doesn't matter. Which is, or in Michael Moss's uh, the the guy who wrote Salt Sugar Fat, he said that's the addiction speaking. People just don't want to switch, and so whatever in in their own heads, it's completely watertight. What I do doesn't matter. Only governments and corporations can make a difference. Even if we do it, it won't make much of a difference. All it's already done already. Can't do anything. Might as well just enjoy time, enjoy my life as it is. Which is, I mean, that's really addiction. Like the future just doesn't matter. I might as well just enjoy and and just forget about the rest. And what's great about life? Yeah, I like pleasure. I mean, I like getting a shoulder rub every now and then. I like eating delicious food. Which, by the way, I have to mention. You said living differently about me, living joyfully also because I'm not suffering. Yeah. In, it's the opposite. This is, like I've never lived better. And it's our connection with others. It's what we do for others, including people that we don't necessarily see every day or that live across the planet or that live in other communities that we're not a part of, but they're still human. And even, dare I say, people in the future, and not in some abstract sense. Although I find that if you tell people, think about the children, they kind of dismiss it because it's, oh, I've heard that before. But people can make that connection when we do, like, okay. I'll just give one, it may sound like a tiny example. Before we went on, uh, people can't see this, but to my right is the window and there's light coming in from there. And over here, I turn my light on so that I, so you can see me a little bit better. I ask myself, do I need to do that? Because when I turn the light on, I'm getting, I mean, I, I get as much as I can from 
non from renewables, but some of it's going to come from coal. I don't really need to do that. So I think about that when I turn that, turn that light on. And some people would say, live a little, enjoy yourself. Don't worry about these things. My connection to others is that's what life is about. That decision is not a burden. That decision creates meaning and purpose. It's stewardship. It is why we're here. I will gladly give up Twinkies in order to not have packaging so much as one thing that Twinkies offer. And oh, as it turns out, apples actually are go without Twinkies in there and, and ice cream and Doritos for long enough, and apples taste sweeter than Doritos ever did. Or not Doritos, well, Doritos, but actually Doritos have a lot of sugar in them. They sure do. But uh, I meant ice cream or, or Twinkies. Yeah. Yeah. And this contrast, people just, I think there's a gut feeling of like, I don't want to face the struggle. I don't want to face the, I think they recognize that if they look inside themselves and see, oh, I could have acted earlier. Then they realize all that time that they were acting, but not acting or, or going the old way. They're hurting people. And they're like, oh, I do not want to face that one. And then they come up with whatever, what I do doesn't matter. And you're just the total counterexample of that. And my read is, I would bet that I've asked you how much of the total you're going to achieve in your life. Like Doe versus Unical seemed like a pretty big deal. The Memphis thing, which we're about to hear about, seems pretty big. I would guess it's you consider all of what you've done so far just a prelude to what's to come. I mean, I feel like this is the whole ballgame here, right? We're, we're not talking about you know changing like with Dovey Unical, I mean, we changed a very big area of the law to allow for international human rights law to apply to corporations, which was a huge deal given that we brought this case in the dawn of the age of globalization, right? So that was a huge deal. And yet that's like one area of the law and one kind of activity and one sector. In the climate crisis, we're Literally, this is an existential threat to humanity. And, you know, as a social justice lawyer who has been doing this for a long time, right? I mean, I, 27 years now, I've been working for social justice, environmental justice, human rights, these not small ideas. And we win some and we lose some. And, you know, you make incremental change and then you make groundbreaking change. And you still feel like what you were talking about, like it's not enough and it's not enough. And we would comfort ourselves with, and I would certainly comfort myself with, with actually the, that mantra that I think is credited to Martin Luther King, although I don't think he actually said it, but he made it famous, which is, you know, the, the arc of history is long, but it swings towards justice, right? Which means that, okay, I might not solve everything in my lifetime, but I'm going to help it swing towards justice. In the context of the climate crisis, we don't have time for it to swing. This is, it's now or never. The science is clear. We actually can't wait to make incremental change. We need to make total transformational systemic change. And that we have missed our window to each change the way that we live and walk on this planet one person at a time. You and I can't ride our bikes enough, walk enough, stop eating Twinkies enough if the companies and the way that the world operates and the way that these industries are pushing for us to continue operating, if that is allowed to keep happening. So the good thing is, is that 
every little bit counts. And it is individuals who are going to lead to the systemic change. And that's where like, I am just feeling so hopeful and energized right now because I just came back from Memphis, speaking of Dr. King. Oh, can I ask, I know that once you start on that one, we're going to go on that one for a while. Yeah. And I want to, I want to call up one last thing on the Doe versus Unical. I think a lot of people envisioned as these companies go overseas, yes, there may be some violations, but something like a rising tide lifts all boats. We will bring some jobs there and eventually it will improve. And I think it belied that nice belief that actually it was exacerbating these issues, that the this was making it, we weren't bringing, unless we intentionally bring the values that we want, then we can actually worsen the situation. And this seems to happen all over the place. And people just figure, well, and one thing I think people think of, of like human rights, if you just say human rights violations, it's a lot of people think, well, you know, they have to ask before they go to the bathroom and maybe they work some long hours, but eventually their wages will go up and they'll be able to fight back. But one, it's rape, it's murder. And I would guess some of it would probably go into genocide as well, as if murder wasn't enough. So you, the listeners can't see this. She's nodding yes. And yeah, I mean, genocide is is a it's a difficult it's a difficult term legally. <laughs> oh, let's take it back from genocide. Yeah, but, yeah. But if we don't deliberately go and say we need to bring up the rights as well, we need, then it'll go the other way. And it's not just we're so good that as long as we interact with us, we'll bring good to you. It's very tempting to feel that. Well, yeah, and and certainly time and time again. I mean, there every single case and issue I've ever worked on, that is what the companies say. That's the marketing. That's the PR. We're bringing jobs. We're, we're investing in their economy. We are helping people. We're building schools, blah, blah, blah. And it is just not what plays out on the ground. And that's why they call it extractive industries. Their job, their whole the whole way they work is to extract, to take out, to take away. So these countries, you know, that are known for being rich in natural resources are the poorest countries in the world. And why is that? There's a reason why they call it the resource curse. Being rich in natural resources means that you are a target for extractive industries. And not once did these companies bring jobs, bring economic development, help, not in any of the, in the countries that I worked in or issues that I worked on, because it's not their model. That's not what they're set up to do. Look at Chevron's bylaws. Look at, look at any corporations, their contracts, their bylaws, their, their investment agreements. It doesn't say our purpose is to improve lives invest in the economy, protect the environment. No, their purpose is one thing. Their duty to their shareholders, their legal duty to their shareholders is one thing, profit. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, If it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 
I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Okay, we have to have you on a second time because when I, I, I have to cover <laughs> the case that they're making or that they were making was not that we're not doing anything wrong. It's almost as if they know, they're, it's clear that we are doing things that we ourselves think is wrong, but you can't touch us because the law is from a different place. Right. Did you ever talk to the executives of the lawyers on the other side one-on-one? Well, when you're litigating against a company, you can't talk to them outside of their counsel, but certainly, I mean, we, we were, we deposed them. We, you know, conducted depositions, you know, the, there was a famous moment when, I don't know if you remember the show, um, Nightline, which, you know, Nightline and 60 Minutes were sort of the two big news, news shows of that genre at the time. And Nightline did actually two features on Dovey Unical. And on one of them, they had the, I think he was the vice president at that time. His name is John Imel. And they asked him that question, like, what, what about the allegations of rape, torture and, and slave labor? What, and, and he literally said on camera, well, yeah, we've heard about that. And whenever we find out that people were forced to work on our project, we would pay them after the fact. And basically that was an admission right there. Like we know it's happening. We've learned about it. And then when we find out about it, we pay them after the fact, which is not, that doesn't take away the fact that these people were forced. And in Burma, everyone knew at gunpoint under penalty of imprisonment or torture or death. And so to say like, oh yeah, well, we know people are forced, but then we pay them totally number one establishes that they knew. And number two establishes that for us legally that, yeah, they worked on your pipeline. And he said to journalists in in a separate time, like, well, yeah, if if forced labor goes hand in glove with doing business in Burma, then yeah, I guess, I guess there's going to be some forced labor on this project. Said it on the record to journalists. So it's sort of like this just understanding and, and what they say, I mean, what the industry calls sacrifice zones. There are certain places that you just have to sacrifice in order to, quote unquote, have development. And is that really development when entire communities, entire countries, entire parts of the world are sacrifice zones? And now with climate crisis, the entire planet is a sacrifice zone. None of us are safe. That's been made incredibly clear this year with the unbelievable heat waves in the Pacific Northwest, in Canada, with the flooding in Germany. You know, if if white, wealthy people from the United States and Europe are now dying because of impacts directly connected to climate change, is this going to wake us up and say we have to do something different? I truly hope so. But if you talk to indigenous communities, people living in poor communities, in where these sacrifice zones have been, these sacrifice zones to the industry have been for decades. It's in poor, black, indigenous, otherwise known as, you know, what the industry calls marginalized communities, what they called the community in Memphis, the path of least resistance. This is nothing new them to be suffering because of the oil and gas industry. And they have been fighting these industries and have been challenging the power and have been winning sometimes 
in incredible David and Goliath ways. And that's where I'm focusing my energy now is to learn from them, to support them, to to be with them in solidarity and in struggle and to have them lead the way as they have been because they've been living sustainably. They've been living within their means. Indigenous people have been living a sustainable life, to quote your podcast, for since the beginning. So we shouldn't be building pipelines and drilling and polluting their air and water. We should be learning from them and following them, not sacrificing those communities so that we can all continue to, you know, (laughs) doom ourselves by burning and consuming this toxic product. What you said at the end there was something that it hit me like a ton of bricks not long ago, that a lot of us think America, we got the solutions. We should lead these others. And yeah, your eyes just were like, oh, what? That's, but a lot of people feel that way, right? Like, especially Silicon Valley. And we should be learning. We are like, we got to about course, about turn. And now I got to go meta here for a second, because I think you got five or 10 minutes before you have to go. And will you come back for a second time and talk about much more about, and and can you tell us, because we'll get back to what I just mentioned now, but can you tell us about the the, five minute view of of the Memphis trip? And yeah. whatever you can cover in that time. And then, and then we'll really get into it next time. So it'll be a cliffhanger. Yeah. So I've spent the last year really learning about where, where is the industry, where is the fossil fuel industry trying to expand in this country? Because not only do we have to keep our existing fossil fuels in the ground, which is so important, but we have to, we definitely can't expand this, this industry. That's like sort of saying, okay, We've dug ourselves a hole and we're up to our neck in this hole. So let's just keep digging it deeper. That's what expanding this industry, building new pipelines, building new refineries, building new you know, infrastructure for, for fossil fuels. That's just digging our hole even deeper when we actually have to be getting ourselves out of the hole. So there are a number of investments around just the United States, forget about the world for a minute, where this industry and with tax dollars are trying to expand this this product. And so one of these places has been in Memphis, in Tennessee, where this pipeline, uh, Valero, the company, has been trying to build a pipeline called the Bihalia Pipeline. And your listeners may have heard about it because it has gotten a lot of attention this year from people like Al Gore, and actors like Danny Glover, Jane Fonda, um, Mark Ruffalo has has talked about it. Not because it's necessarily a massive pipeline in the climate context, the way that the Line Three pipeline is. That's going to bring tar sands pipelines from the, from Canada into the United States, going through Indigenous communities. Another place that I spent a lot of time at this year, or the Dakota Access pipeline, or the Keystone XL pipeline. Those are huge in terms of, yes, environmental injustice through indigenous lands, but also in terms of climate impact because tar sands is the dirtiest fuel, among the dirtiest fuels in the world. The Bihalia pipeline is small comparatively from a climate impact, but from an environmental injustice perspective, it is off the charts because it could have gone through very easily, made a straight line through you know, Memphis 
but it would have had to go through white and middle class and upper class neighborhoods. So instead, the company basically gerrymandered, if, if pipelines can be gerrymandered, but zigzagged this route, proposed route, all around the white neighborhoods and only through black neighborhoods, some of which are historic um, freed slave towns that still exist today. The, the people who live there, their ancestors were, were freed slaves, like Boxtown. The town is literally called Boxtown because when these freed slaves made their way to this area, they lived in boxes and first established their, their community there. So there's historic and cultural resources that are, are so important. Plus, these people live there, right? This is their home, their ancestors. It's where they live. And so this pipeline company decides that, oh, we're going to, you know, route this, this, this pipeline with all of the pollution and the forced relocation of communities, the displacement and the harms that come with oil and gas that are, that are par for the course. And they, when they were asked, why this crazy jigsaw puzzle piece looking pipeline route when they could have just gone, you know, made it really easy straight through. They said, well, we thought that we would bring this pipeline through. And they said the path, path of least resistance, which was an assessment of, oh, these black communities don't have power the way that the white people do. And so it's just going to be easier for us to put it here. And boy, were they wrong. So I've been I've been following this this movement. The communities started an organization called Memphis Community Against the Pipeline MCAP. They connected themselves with with environmental groups, with lawyers, with the media, with national organizations. Eventually, getting the attention of people like Al Gore, who of course is from from Tennessee. But it started with them raising their voice and saying no, and saying, no, you cannot sacrifice us. We are not the path of least resistance. We are not going to let you take our lands and poison our water and poison our air and force us off of our property. We matter. And it started with that. And that's an incredible source of power that until now, I would say it hasn't only been the companies that have been undervaluing that power. But the environmental movement nationally, environmental philanthropy for sure, has not been taking that power seriously. We've been leaving it up on the table until now. The climate movement, to the extent that there is a movement, has been led by, and, and the biggest spokespeople and the, the quote-unquote experts have been scientists, lawyers policy wonks, people who go to Paris, who go to Copenhagen, who go and negotiate multi-stakeholder agreements at the UN. And look where that's gotten us. We're even in more crisis than we were, you know, 10 years ago when all these movements have been, have been negotiating these big, fancy agreements. And, and by the way, if you look at the three biggest, you know, climate quote unquote solutions, the Paris Accords, Obama's clean power plan, which, which failed, and the Green New Deal, not one of them mentions the F word, which is fossil fuels. So it's like all these solutions without actually addressing the problem, which is fossil fuels. Well, people on the ground, like in Memphis, who have to live with the impacts of fossil fuels 
every single day. They need to be the new experts in the climate crisis. We need them to be leading us. We need the indigenous people up on line three who today as we speak and for the past basically since January have been every day putting their bodies between the machines of destruction and their sacred lands, protecting all of us from these industries who are dooming us to a planet that we can't live on. That's the power that we need to recognize, that we need to invest in, that I at the Equation Campaign, now that I'm in the world of philanthropy, I'm bringing that power analysis to the work that we're supporting. And I was in Memphis last week and I felt the power. And that's what makes me feel like, oh, not only is it not impossible, if we actually recognize the power that's already there and then just partner with it and unleash it, I'm sorry, but watch out Chevron, watch out Enbridge, watch out ExxonMobil. You've got nothing on these people that are protecting their lives, their water, their air, their children, and their sacred homeland. For us, it might be an issue that we work on and we do out of the goodness of our hearts or because we actually read the newspaper or look out the window every now and then. But for folks on the ground, it's a matter of life and death. And that's an incredible source of power that we ignore at our risk on the movement side. And certainly the companies ignore at their peril. And they did ignore it on at their peril in Memphis because they thought it was the path of least resistance. These communities organized, they mobilized, they raised their voices, and the companies just last month canceled the pipeline. They, they, they were like, we're not doing it. They canceled it. And it was the path of not least resistance, but such resistance that they won. And I think that hearing the details of that is going to be fascinating, I believe. And I hope we can pick up here next time. Yeah, but you know what? You should have Justin Pearson. You should have one of the community leaders on your show because I, I got to observe it and feel it for a couple of days and we're supporting it but they're living it and leading it. And it's, you cannot imagine how inspiring, but not inspiring like Pollyanna, oh, yay them, but like inspiring like, I, oh, I'm going to do it too. It's where, where we lose is when we have despair. That is the tool of the corporation. That's the tool of the dictator. That is the tool of the oppressor is to make us feel like we can't do anything. And when you meet these community members who have just beaten back this powerful oil company and protected their families and their lands, then you know that that's just wrong and don't buy that, that we can't do anything. We absolutely can't. And I hope you'll put me in touch with him to, so I can invite him on. And yeah. also, I, I know that there are people out here, out there who just heard what you said and thought to themselves, great, someone's taking care of it. I can keep doing what I was doing. And it's not just... Be- the way I usually put it is when I hear an old person, I'm doing it by age now, but it could be by class or skin yeah. color. So by age, it's, it goes like this. Someone says, oh, I'm so glad the young people are fixing the problems that we did. They're stepping up. They're going to fix what we did wrong. That is what our parents said when, when we were young and they were old. And if we say we have the resources, the, we old people are the ones who are making decisions. We hold the shares. We hold the offices. And if we wait for the people who can't vote and have no off and and no, they're just going to grow up and say, what we say, we, oh, I got a mortgage, I got to put the kids through college, I hope next generation. And so if someone else is acting, that's all the more reason for us to act more. 
just because I'm sure that people out there are thinking to themselves, problem, problem averted. It has to be both and. It has to be, it has to be everything. And first of all, how boring is it to say somebody else is taking care of it? I mean, I have the best job ever. I love my life. I love that I get to go and get in the trenches a little bit with these communities who are fighting for all of us. You know, and like you said something earlier that I was thinking of. I mean, I went to, you know, University of Virginia Law School and pretty much almost all of my classmates went and worked in these fancy law firms and making tons of money. And, you know, people often say to me, like, Katie, and especially when I was at Earthrights, like, because in, in the beginning, we had like zero money. I mean, my salary was like zero. And UVA was not super happy because I was, when, you, when you're making zero money, you really bring down their, their average salary that they have to <laughs> report. I, I used to not answer when, because I got an MBA. <laughs> and so the business school, I, I wouldn't respond because I don't want to mess up the rankings. Right, right. Exactly. No, I was like, well, no, the the way that we're going to change how we value this work is by actually making someone who cares about it pay attention. Right. And so, so I always put zero, but anyway, all of my friends and colleagues from law school, you know, went and worked in fancy jobs, making a lot of money. And so whenever I talk to folks at law schools or, you know, anyone or at cocktail parties or whatever, people would be like, oh, Katie, you're, it's so impressive what you've done. And you really just made such a sacrifice to do what you're doing with your law degree. And I was like, and I always say like, okay, that is just total BS because first of all, I'm fine. I have a home. I have food on my table. I have a mortgage. I have now a new puppy, right? (laughs) (laughs) I have two kids. I have a bike. I do have a car. Yes, it's a Prius. What more could I possibly need? Do I have a vacation home in the Adirondacks or a beach home and, you know, wherever? Do I have like all this extra stuff? No, I have actually more than I need, but I certainly have enough. And to say that I have sacrificed doing this work that I love with people that I love on issues that feed my, my, my brain and my soul and my spirit with inspiring people. No, that is like, it would be a sacrifice if I had to go and make a huge amount of money doing boring paperwork, representing loathsome people for something that I didn't believe in. So you got to also get off. I mean, you're living a joyful life. It's not a sacrifice to yeah. live joyfully. It is not. And so, yeah. Anyway. We we could easily keep going. And I, I hope know, we do. I know. And I'm sorry. I'm like going on and on. But I, and I do have to um, get off because I have this other call, which is so, not going to be nearly as fun. But uh, yeah, this is, this is great. Let's close now. And I'm um, sorry to cut you off, but we could just go on. Yeah. And, and I know. I know. Well, Katie Redford, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk. (laughs) I feel like I've talked at you the whole time. (laughs) We'll talk again soon. We will. Thank you so much, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. 
please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.